Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? Oh, you know, just trying to hold it all together, Leslie. Yeah, it's a little scary out there. (laughs) Is this The Walking Dead? No. No zombies yet. So we're going to do our best to provide our typical informative, entertaining podcast while trying to avoid being depressed about the world falling apart all around us. Uh, Yeah. It feels weird to be recording this. I'll say that. It does. And so keep in mind, uh, as we go forward in this podcast, we are recording late morning on Thursday. You will hopefully be listening to this on Friday. But the reality is that at this point, the news cycle is shifting at a pace so rapid that we are going to miss like five news cycles between the time this records and the time it posts. And so you just have to bear with us. And if we don't miss things, it's not because we didn't know that they happened. It's because they hadn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. So lots going on. And, you know, and, and on a personal note, thanks for your, everyone's patience uh, for us taking last week off while I moved. Could not have recorded. And honestly, I saw the lines for water and toilet paper at Costco and, and it was bon- I thought it was bonkers. And now I kind of wish I had stocked up a little bit more. Well, let's dive right in. What do you say? On the renewal front, Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19 will return for its fourth season on ABC. And Netflix has picked up a third and final season of its Lost in Space reboot. And we have so much casting news this week. We're going to start with John Bernthal, who will take over the Richard Gere role in Showtime's pilot reboot or remake or adaptation or whatever of American Gigolo. Uma Thurman will topline Apple's kidnapping thriller Suspicion, starring along uh, Kunal Nair and Noah Emmerich. On the pilot side, and there's again a lot of this here, Scott Foley will topline Fox's faux reality series The Big Leap. Andy Garcia is set as the male lead opposite Katie Segal in Rebel, the Aaron Brockovich drama from Grey's Anatomy boss Christopher Vernoff. And Modern Family star Julie Bowen will lead the cast of CBS's Raised by Wolves, a comedy from the creators of Will and Grace. And this week in series orders, AMC has picked up two seasons of its first animated drama series, a sci-fi entry called Pantheon from the creator of Turn. In other animation news, 30 Rock creators Tina Fey and Robert Carlock are reteaming for a Netflix animated comedy called Mulligan, which explores rebuilding society after an alien attack. Over at Disney+, Plus, the streamer has put in development a live-action Beauty and the Beast prequel series from the creators of Once Upon a Time and starring Josh Gad and Luke Evans, who will, will reprise their roles from the 2017 feature. And wrapping things up, last but certainly not least, HBO Max has picked up a docuseries following Marky Mark Wahlberg's professional endeavors called, and I am not making this up, Wall Street. Yes, really, Wall Street. W-A-H-L Street. Wall Street. Do you need to explain the the pun to the kids? No, I think I just did. Okay. Uh, And finally, to wrap things up in cancellations, YouTube continues to axe its various attempts at scripted programming. And in this case, one that makes me a little bit sad, they've canceled Impulse, a fairly good series that YouTube has no real idea what to do with after two seasons. And Netflix has canceled the RuPaul sitcom AJ and the Queen after a lone season. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, and really and truly there was no question what is leading off this week, it is indeed the coronavirus. 
This week, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. There are more than 1,000 confirmed cases of the disease resulting from the virus in the U.S. alone, and 31 people have died, at least as of the time that we record this. On the TV front, specifically, uh, since this is a TV podcast, programming that films with live studio audiences, including morning and late night talk shows, as well as syndicated game shows like Jeopardy!, And some multi-camera sitcoms are all taping without live audiences. The same is true for syndicated daytime talk shows like Ellen and Dr. Phil. CBS has delayed production on the 41st season of Survivor. This morning, Apple's The Morning Show shut down production for at least two weeks. Upfront presentations in New York have also been impacted. CBS and NBC Universal have scrapped their live presentations and will do video presentations for advertisers. Multi-camera comedies like including One Day at a Time, have also scrapped their live studio audiences. The prog shoot of Marvel's Disney Plus show Falcon and Winter Soldier has been delayed amid coronavirus fears. Other events, including Paley Fest, the Little Fires Everywhere premiere, the Kids' Choice Awards, CinemaCon, E3, and scores of others have been canceled or postponed. And when we say this is just the tip of the iceberg, this is really just seriously, the tip of the iceberg. we've left out many impacts that have already taken place, and there is no question that in the next 12 to 24 hours before you listen to this podcast... More and more things will happen. So, And Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson both revealed that they tested positive for coronavirus. The N- NBA has shut down games for at least 30 days. The NHL has done the same. Major League Baseball is on the, the cusp of doing the same, which is, you know, California G- Governor Gavin Newsom has done what other states have done and, and is suggesting public gatherings of 250 more be suspended at least through March. There's a lot going on, Dan. So joining us this week to discuss more of the coronavirus's impact on the town and on the industry that this podcast still has to be about, even if it's a little bit frivolous in this exact moment, is The Hollywood Reporter senior staff writer Chris Gardner. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, you guys. So let's start. I mean, you are our intrepid red carpet reporter with so many events being canceled, movie premieres, TV premieres, how have you seen this impact red carpets? Well, that's such a great question. And I think the obvious answer is just like my calendar just completely cleared up. So if you guys want to hang out, I'm now available <laughs> um, to do that. But we have to keep appropriate social distancing, stand six feet away from each other. So uh, but yeah, I mean, on, on a serious note, it is unprecedented what we're seeing here. I mean, I think the week started out relatively normally, you know, with the Mulan premiere and then continued through Tuesday with the bloodshot premiere. And then, you know, in between those events, there were, this is LA, so there were tons of fashion and beauty events and influencer events, and we were still getting invites to screenings, and life seemed to be going relatively normally. But then, you know, things changed rapidly yesterday as cancellations just started flowing in. I spoke to one publicist who told me that it was like a domino effect, and I think that was the best description because first it was South by Southwest, and then came Coachella and Stagecoach, and then, you know, the list went on and on. On from there. And and now I just actually watched the live stream of a press conference with all the city officials in Los Angeles. And last night, Governor Newsom put uh, enforced a ban of, of events of more than 250. And then today I just heard that the city is now sort of limiting gatherings of 50 or more in public buildings. 50. And it's ongoing and, 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 and very strange times. And, and like I said, my calendar is completely wide open now and I've become a coronavirus reporter like everybody. And this just in, the city of Anaheim <laughs> has postponed WonderCon. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Well, and we've already said that, uh, you know, that we're recording this on midday Thursday and that the reality is that by the time this goes up on Friday, almost anything we say is going to be outdated. Is anybody still pretending as if we're business as usual or or have we now finally given up on pretending that? We've finally given up on pretending that. I think life is different today and it will be, like you said, different tomorrow, unfortunately, by the time this goes up. And, you know, even just sitting here waiting to talk to you guys from my house where I'm working from home just to to be careful because of, you know, other circumstances. I I think, you know, I got an alert that Broadway is suspending productions for a month and, you know, and I'm watching a press conference with Eric Garcetti saying he's going to order food for his family from a local restaurant to support local businesses it's just like you know what is happening um and i think everyone has 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 recognized that that life today is now different well what was the tone that they attempted to set at the city of la press conference Uh, is is, everyone is trying to avoid the okay everybody panic but everyone's doing a variable job of that yeah, I mean, when well, you know, I mean, that's a that's a great question because when when you when you see the list of news alerts coming through your email of everything being canceled and NBA season and then possibly baseball and the NCAA tournament and all of these things that that bring so much joy to people and not only that but like you know these huge blockbuster movies that that you know are moving off the schedule, it is so easy to panic and think about okay, what are we going to do and what's really happening to the business and what's the financial impact and all of those things. But the tone of the press conference today was really that these measures that are being taken are are just to implement a plan to provide for the safety of residents to contain the spread because Mayor Garcetti just said now coronavirus is here and what we're doing now is simply just to contain it and alleviate the stress that it takes on the community and so that we could get back to life as normal quicker than we could if people just like continued as if life was normal and went to a huge event and, you know, perhaps coughed on everyone. I mean, you know, so it is, the panic is there, but I think, you know, I felt the the tone of the press conference was relatively hopeful that they're taking all the appropriate measures and that Los Angeles is a city that can handle this and will rebound sooner rather than later. What about when you were at uh, some of these big events, like the Mulan premiere, when you worked that red carpet, what was the vibe like? Well, I wasn't at the red carpet at Mulan, but I'll tell you a better story is that I was at a red carpet two weeks ago where Rita Wilson was. And that was before social distancing was a term in the L.A. lexicon that people were, you know, bantering about. And and she was already practicing that with her arms closed and keeping distance from reporters and not hugging anyone. And then you see someone like that become the first, you know, the first big celebrity with Tom Hanks to come out and say that they've they've tested positive and, you know, are now seeking treatment. It's pretty remarkable that we've gone that far from just two weeks ago to now, because even at the Mulan premiere, although I wasn't there, I do know that for a lot of people, it was business as usual, except for servers were wearing gloves and you couldn't pick up your own food on the buffet at the after party. And there were some people that were still hugging and and there were just journalists that had flown in from around the world. And now everything is, is sort of off. It's like if you went to the local playground at a school, it just depends on what people's attitudes are. Some people are panicked and, and taking all the necessary precautions. Other people are just living life as normal if they don't consider them, themselves to be in a high risk group, which is the elderly, the elderly, 
people with underlying health conditions or pregnant women. So I am none of those things. So I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm being safe, but, but not panicked. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing that I think is so interesting is, you know, this is Hollywood is a town famous for meetings and, you know, shaking on deals. How have you seen that process? I mean, we're starting to hear some information trickle in about meetings that are now being done over teleconferencing and some, you know, writers rooms may be trying out different things about so that they can avoid having to come into the office, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, too. You know, it is a town where there's a lot of handshaking, they say glad handing, and there's a lot of kisses on the cheeks uh, when you greet people and and tight hugs. And, and what I'm seeing is that's that's, you know, it's not completely absent. I think, you know, I've been to events where people are still hugging and there's still, you know, uh, there are still some kisses on the cheeks and there are still like some, do I dare say, canoodling. Um, the, and by, like the, by, the elbow by, bump by, is becoming a thing and the <laughs> foot bump is becoming a thing. Yeah, it's just become that awkward. It's just things are just a bit more awkward for the people who are being cautious because you, you approach someone and you're like, okay, what are we going to do? Is it going to be the elbow bump? Is it going to be like the fist bump? Is it going to be, you know, just like an awkward sort of air hug and you know I think everyone's just finding their way through it and you sort of get how people you, you can sort of see when people approach you or how they're approaching other people like what kind of person they are and how they're you know protecting themselves it, it is it's a it's a delicate dance I'll say and what is the thing that you're monitoring next because obviously you, you know you report the things that are happening but what is next on the domino fall I guess <sighs> well I think everyone is looking to can to see what will happen. And, you know, I'm a reporter who's covered can the past four or five years. For our listeners, we should clarify that the Cannes Film Festival is the biggest film festival on the calendar. Yeah, it is. It is the biggest. And we are in a, in a waiting game right now, you know, where we also have been affected because we are obviously waiting to report on the news. But we as an organization have just been waiting to book our hotel rooms and our flights to see how it's all going to play out because those things have to be organized well in advance. And uh, you have to put deposits for hotel rooms. It's not a typical film festival where you just like, you know, you, you, you make a, a reservation online to book your hotel room. I mean, can requires a, a huge deposit on hotel rooms and office space, which we have there. So we're really waiting for that. And I'm not optimistic that it will continue. But if it did, it would be great. And it would be nice to know, you know, in, you know, mid-May, May 13th, that that we would be in a place where it would be a bit more in the rearview mirror. And I, and I hope that's the case. But I'm not optimistic at this point because, you know, those gatherings, you know, the, the, the big palais movie theater seats hundreds and hundreds of people and you're sitting in a, in a movie theater for, you know, sometimes three hours. I mean, on opening night, I've, I've sat in there for probably yeah. F- yeah, four hours in close proximity to, to, to journalists, filmmakers, distributors, sales agents from all around the world, from every territory. So, um, and, you know, as we see now, there are over a hundred countries affected by coronavirus. So I'm not optimistic, but that's where we're watching right now. And also just the everyday stuff. I mean, I had a screening yesterday that I didn't go to mostly because I was reporting on the latest coronavirus update. So, so what am I doing? I'm also just watching these press conferences and thank God for live streaming and just to see like where things are going. It's a really hour by hour uh, transition. Yeah. And I think the big one stateside to keep an eye on is going to be San Diego Comic-Con in July, which I can't imagine, A, going to that 
any other year is, is you're, you know, is a germ fest. But this year, I, I can't imagine that actually happening. And as as of our recording time, it's about noon here, Thursday, March 12th. It's still all systems go for San Diego Comic-Con, even though it's uh, sibling WonderCon was just postponed. So, Yeah. And I want to know more than anything. I want to turn the tables and interview you guys. What are you going to be watching this weekend when you stay home? <laughs> well, not baseball, apparently. The, stu- the stupid thing is that for me, this doesn't necessarily impact anything. I'm still watching the same screeners for TV shows that are premiering next week. The great thing about uh, TV is that it's entertainment that you can watch from the comfort of your own quarantined, isolated home. So, but, <laughs> but, so yeah, so that's that's what I'm doing is business as usual. And I will continue to attempt to inform people on things to watch while being quarantined yeah and then of course there's a new episode of the walking dead if you feel like watching something that mirrors a little bit of society (laughs) yeah wow well take care of yourself chris and we really appreciate you coming on and updating us today and and hopefully things will begin to normalize soon knock on wood uh it's been an honor and i'm such a big fan of the podcast and i can't believe that i'm on it so thank you thanks chris Chris. and and stay tuned to thr.com for more updates as they become available number two changing gears and a dramatic change because there's no alternative up second there were a couple big stories last week that broke while leslie was in the process of unpacking boxes and securing her cable and internet at her new abode so we decided to go backwards a little bit and look at some of those big stories, which we acknowledge are not nearly as big as the first story. <laughs> yes. The first thing I, I do want to discuss is what's going on with Pop TV. You know, last week news broke that a growing number of originals were gutted as Pop Scrap series, including Florida Girls, Flack, and Best Intentions. It's part of a larger push that Viacom CBS is doing with the network. And shocker, they want to own more of its schedule. So none of those three shows were produced in-house meaning Pop had to pay a licensing fee to those respective studios. All that remains in terms of scripted originals on Pop is the final season of Schitt's Creek and the revived season of One Day at a Time. The latter's future, beyond its upcoming season, is murky at best, considering that that show is is expensive to produce. It's owned by Sony, and as part of its, its deal with Netflix to revive One Day at a Time, it First run episodes can't run on a streaming on a streaming platform like CBS All Access. But in a larger sense, I think, you know, look, we've talked about extensively on this show what is happening with Audience Network. You know, in, in January, Warner Media announced that it was turning that platform into an HBO Max preview station. I think that is probably the closest comparison that I can make to what is going on with Pop where they want to basically look at the massive library that Viacom CBS has and create originals, possibly originals, for for pop to air on that network. So that's basically cost-cutting. While they're not out of originals as of yet, I would expect a lot of library titles and a lot of reboots and probably a lot of, like, second-window programming to, to air there. It's definitely, it's an interesting time given that pop was just, say, for example, a couple months ago celebrating what a large splash Shit's Creek and its Emmy nominations and all of that had made and then they were being the savior for one day at a time and you can go back. We had they had a, momentum. We had a great podcast interview with uh, pop president Brad Schwartz which which was a, a terrific interview which was very upbeat and talking about establishing the pop brand and all of and, the... And building off of Shit's Creek and one day at a time, yeah. 
and and so now we're in this position where, where we're going to have to see what happens with these various shows. So One Day at a Time is still going to premiere in two weeks. But what does that mean? Does that mean that One Day at a Time is basically right back on the bubble trying to find out where it's going? Uh, yes. Yes, is the yes. answer to that question. Florida Girls was renewed for a second season. Are they going to shop that around, I guess, now? I so, presume, yeah. And I think The Florida Girls is a is a good show, and I think it's a show that improved a lot in its first season. I would love to see it find a new home, but now— Flack had momentum, too. That's the uh, Flack didn't yeah. really have that much momentum. Uh, there, it, listen, people <laughs> were talking about a show that aired on Pop that wasn't Schitt's Creek and or One Day at a Time, and I think when that happens— that's I consider that momentum in the peak TV world. And Best Intentions, which was from several of the American Pie producers, uh, hadn't actually premiered. But, you know, they, they showed clips at press tour and they seemed excited about it. And they seemed more than anything excited about how it fit with the pop TV brand, which apparently now doesn't exist. And so we went to all that trouble of explaining to people what pop TV was in the first place. And now, uh, well, OK. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, if you want to go back and listen to that to, to get a sense, it was that that was our August. 16th episode where we interviewed uh, Pop TV president Brad Schwartz, who still has a job. There have been layoffs, of course, at, at Pop TV. So, I mean, I think this is just one of the things that, that we're seeing as these big conglomerates kind of realign the decks to better position themselves for the streaming era. Look, we see Warner Media doing it. Obviously, audience networks fell. I think we're all waiting for, for what's going to happen with some of the originals on DC Universe. One of them is going to air concurrently on HBO Max. One of them will also have a second window on the CW. And I think, you know, the future of the other things that they have in the works there, like Titans, I think that, you know, I think the expectation is that they're going to move to HBO Max if they want to keep these shows going at all. You know, look... At some point, NBC is going to start making these these larger shifts in terms of not the not the broadcast network, but the larger company, NBC Universal, and reviewing its portfolio and maybe play some TV show musical chairs. We saw it happen last year with Dirty John moving from Bravo, which exited the scripted space. E is out of the scripted space. Dirty John moved to USA Network, which is make, using its scripted originals as tent poles. They've cut way back on the number of, of scripted programming that they're doing and they're making a big unscripted push. Sci-fi is is kind of switching gears a little bit to to more licensed content, stuff like Winona Earp that is inexpensive that they license from Canada. Yeah, I mean, this is it's not surprising, but it is disheartening to hear about Pop when you have a network that had that kind of momentum. The other thing that we wanted to touch on was Grey's Anatomy said farewell to Justin Chambers by spoiler alert. And if you haven't seen the episode, I'm about to spoil it. So this is your warning. Reuniting Alex Karev with Katherine Heigl's Izzy Stevens in a thread that was more than a decade old. Neither actor appeared in the Alex Karev farewell episode, though Chambers did provide voiceover. There is no way around how they did this, but it was kind of great that they, that the writers found a way to find a dangling thread from Alex and Izzy's storyline from a decade ago to close a loop. I was completely surprised that, th that this is how they wrote him out. But did you find it satisfying? I mean, it wasn't satisfying because he didn't appear on screen. Why he didn't appear on screen, I don't know. All we know is his official statement that he wanted to do something different after 16 years as he turned 50. You know, no one can fault anyone for being on a show for 16 years and wanting to, to change things up. I, I completely get that. So e either way, you know, when Gray's, you know, does a, a farewell, you look at Sandra Oh, and that was building all season. You know, she, the decision to, to leave was her own. She made that, that choice ahead at the start of the season. So viewers had all season long 20 plus episodes to prepare for that and this is kind of abrupt where his last on-screen appearance was there was no fanfare no promotion no one really knew that that was it um but yeah it was 
Yeah, I, I was impressed that they found a way to that they found a dangling thread from 10 years ago to and close that loop. And that's one of the things that Christopher Hoff talked to a lot of the, the writers and the cast members about when she came back onto the show two years ago um, was what storylines haven't we responded to? What have we kind of thrown out there but haven't touched back on? So this was a big one. Fair enough. I was surprised by how many people did have very visceral emotional reactions on Twitter. When but it's it also happened. the character was married and happily married at the same time. And, uh, you know, Camilla Luddington's Joe Karev has had, had a great storyline. I think they got married on the show like two years ago, two seasons ago. But it was a big surprise. And I think there was no other way around that. So, yeah. Last thing that we want to touch on is a uh, limited series. Truth Be Told was renewed for a second season at Apple and, you know, it's always fun when something that's billed as a limited series gets a second uh, second season. But I, I do want to use this segment as an opportunity for us to plug our December 6th interview with Truth Be Told showrunner Nichelle Spellman, in which she discussed plans for continuing the Octavia Spencer drama. So it was a great interview. This, the, obviously, the show is coming back, but it, don't bill it as a limited series if you think you're going to renew it. Nothing. Everything's either. limited, <laughs> meaning episode, the episodes are under 22. <laughs> Everything is limited, and yet nothing is limited. And speaking of other things that are that are new, the kids in the hall. Not new, no, but it's been revived at Amazon with five members of its original cast. I Dan, a, you're Canadian. Are you excited about this? <laughs> I am a bad Canadian in the kids in the hall. While I can appreciate large chunks of it, it was never really my favorite. Uh, but another one of those things where I was pleased slash excited to see the sheer amount of joy slash enthusiasm on Twitter about this revival and. Why not? You know, they they are they are beloved and generally available. So why should they not get back together and, and give the people what they apparently want? Uh, I will probably not suddenly become a huge Kids in the Hall fan by the time it returns. So onward and upward. Yeah. And that brings us to our third topic this week. Number three. Up third this week, HBO's Westworld is back March 15th for its third season after being off the air for nearly two years. Joining us for what will be a spoiler-free preview of the new season is series regular host and the amazing Josh Wiggler, who has expertly covered the first two seasons of the series for THR. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm bringing myself back online for, for Westworld. Exciting times. There it is. I love the pun. So... Season three is a big reset. It carries a new subtitle called The New World for this eight-episode season. The hosts, including Evan Rachel Woods Dolores, have officially left the park. How big of a reset is season three, and how stunned will viewers be by what they see when when it returns? You know, I think, Dan, you actually hit the nail on the head in your review of the premiere, where it's it's a reset, but not as much of a reset as you might think. Uh, I think if you're if you're coming into Westworld blind with no memories of what happened in the first two seasons, you know I've heard I've heard a few people who are saying like, oh, I, I've never watched Westworld before. The new season looks so different. Maybe I'll just start here with season three. I think you're going to be a little lost. Uh, it's it's pretty clear that the that the show is still trading on its very very deep mythology. Uh, you know, decades of story have passed in the two seasons of Westworld, and that's all still very much in play. But it's the setting that's a really hard reboot. Uh, you know, we're we're outside the park. We're primarily in Los Angeles, a few other places in the world. Uh, it's set somewhere in the 2050s, so a few decades down the line from where we are now. There's floating cars. 
There's self-driving cars. There's uh, there's uh, there's the Rico app, which is basically Grand Theft Auto meets Uber. There's a lot that's going on where the world that we're looking at a few decades down the line is is very different, and that's the space we're occupying in Westworld. But the story is continuing very very much. Now, for me as a viewer, I've generally just been able to kind of watch episodes of Westworld and walk away from them. But you're a much more invested viewer as you prepared for the start of the third season. How much? I don't know, rewatching or whatever did you have to do? And how well did you find that you were able to jump back into the world, given your advanced interest in the material? And I also saw you did a rewatch of the whole series, right? I did. I did a full, full rewatch. I did a full binge. I mean, the show's the show's very complicated and dense. Even when you're in the trenches of it, it could be it could be kind of hard to see the the forest for the trees when you're watching in the in the real time. But it's been two years almost since Westworld was on on TV. It's been a long time. Uh, so I very much felt the need to to freshen my memory of everything. And I I found that the that going back and watching everything was really helpful in terms of tracking where the characters are. Uh, I think that season two gets dinged a lot for being like overly complicated and and once again relying on a bit of a time-bending um, storyline that's spanning the full season. And I don't think that that's unfair as far as the, the construct of the season. But because of the premise of the show that the entire first season is sort of building to this boiling point where these robots are starting to truly come online and truly become uh, conscious, sentient, unique beings in their own right... It's really not until season two that you're actually getting a grasp on who their characters are. Uh, so I think at the very least, a season two binge is, is if not required, highly advised. And I would say at the very least, you really ought to watch the season two finale before you gear up for the season three premiere. Uh, there's, there's stuff that happens in the season two finale that I kind of thought was a little bit of a throwaway at the time. You know, some of the stuff that takes place in The Forge with Bernard and Dolores and this digital version of Ben Barnes's character. Uh, that is actually pretty important, uh, it seems, for the storyline of season three. So at the very least, I think you want to watch that season two finale. And uh, you should also certainly, of course, read uh, Josh's What to Know Before the Premiere oh, article. <laughs> Yes, yes. That'll if, if you want if you really just want to cheat and do it the easy way. <laughs> that's what I tried to do for you with that article. So you can go and you can read that. Uh, it's on thr.com slash Westworld where we're gonna have full coverage all season long. And it gives you an idea of where the main characters were last seen, what their status is, who's coming back, who's not, and why. Uh, and so hopefully that's a that's a helpful reminder as you as you get the deck set for season three because it's a new world, but the, it's the same player's new world. You know, you want you wanna be freshened up on where the players are at. So if there was one piece of information that viewers should remember before tuning back in, what would you say that one fact is? One piece. Um, I think that it's, I think you, you you basically remember the broad strokes of the characters, right? You know, uh, Bernard is a host who only recently found out that he's a host and he is uh, he's more concerned with humanity because he spent so much time thinking he was one of them. Uh, Dolores is the revolutionary. She's the she's sort of the warmongering host at this point. Maeve is a little bit neutral. Uh, she's kind of ambivalent about about this greater conflict and more interested in survival and, and pushing herself forward. Those are the, the broad strokes of those characters. I think that everybody gets that I think that the the biggest thing to remember in terms of a plot point is that season two focused fairly heavily on this plot 
by the Delos Corporation, which is the the big bad company that's behind Westworld the park, and how it wasn't just that they were invested in the park and invested in your ability to go and commit crimes on robots to get your hedonistic kicks uh, out there in the world, but that it was also the base of operations for a project where they were trying to map the human brain onto onto robots to to basically create sort of a digital reincarnation via hosts. Um, that plan seemed to be thwarted in season two to a certain extent. But you know, people, they're awful. They're not going to give up so easily. Uh, so I think that that's important to remember for season three. Uh, I think that you want to you want to keep track of the fact that that is something that's very much on the mind of the powerful people in the world of Westworld. They don't want to die and they're not going to give up on their plan to not die very easily. And sort of on the other side of that equation, not the what is one thing people need uh, need to know to start watching the third season. What is one thing that you personally need to know by the end of the third season? Oh, that's a great question. Um, one thing that I feel like I absolutely need to know by the end of the third season, I got to know who the heck is Tessa Thompson? <laughs> who is who is Charlotte Hale? You know, that is that is the big mystery, uh, the big character mystery, I think, by the end of season two is uh, that that Tessa Thompson is is being utilized in a much greater capacity, but a different capacity because her her character, who was a human gets gunned down, and then this new robot body that is based on Tessa Thompson's character leaves the park with Dolores' brain kicking around in it. Uh, and in one of the final scenes of season two, you see uh, you see Dolores and, and Charlotte standing side by side. So who's the new Charlotte? I think that the, the season absolutely has to answer that. If we, if we go the full season without answering that question, it's not going to be good. Well, for more Westworld coverage, be sure to check out Josh's weekly series regular podcast and stay tuned to THR.com slash Westworld for interviews and analysis. And we'll have more of Dan's thoughts on the new season later in this episode in our Critics Corner segment. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thank you guys for having me. Number four. Up next, it's our showrunner spotlight. Our guest this week is the co-creator and star of FX's Better Things. An Emmy winner for King of the Hill, Pamela Adlon is a two-time Emmy nominee for acting on Better Things, and she has directed every episode since the show's second season. The fourth season of Better Things premiered on FX on March 5th. Welcome to the podcast, Pamela. I'm excited to be here. Now, I feel like when the show started, there was kind of the, oh, it's semi-autobiographical narrative around it, and everyone wanted to sort of associate you with Sam and associate the three girls with your daughters. Were we kind of overblowing from the beginning how autobiographical it was or wasn't? And has it become less so as it has gone along? That's a great question because I got it was relentless because people would say, how autobiographical is your show? Well, it's like, you know, I mean, figure it out. You know, I've got three daughters. I've got the English mom. I'm an actor, like a gun for hire. But it's all the stories that I want to put into these characters. So, yeah, I think it was blown up, but I think also it's kind of like a funny thing because when people see me and if something happens, they're like, is this going to go in? This is going in, right? This is going in the show. And that people don't fear me for that reason, it's funny, and that people are bold and people get really excited about having something that they were involved with reflected in the world of this show. But it's always just kind of reflected. It's never directly depicted. And it's never been that really, would you say? I don't think so. I mean, there's like elements like in season one, when the school finds Frankie in the boys room, 
and she says, Mom, Mom, I know what you're going to say, that I'm identifying as a boy, but it's not that. It's just that the girls are disgusting, and I was in the girls' room, and -and so-and-so stuck her finger up her pussy and wiped it on Hadley's face, and I go, ew! (laughs) Middle school girls are fucking disgusting bitches! (laughs) That is all from my middle school experience. And it didn't happen to me, the wiping, but it was like two girls were doing that to each other and they thought it was funny and they were like unzipping their, uh, we used to wear gym outfits, like these onesies with a zipper. And it was so bold and shocking to me because I grew up like in a very kind of strict way with my English mother. And I say conservative and she would get so mad at me if I said the word conservative. She was strict, but I was, you know, a little bit sheltered. So things like that I remember. So it can be anything from things that happened with my daughters, their friends, or my friends, or me in my childhood. And this is the perfect conduit. One of the things I always find really interesting, especially as someone who covers development and castings full time here, is when this show started, roles for women weren't quite where we are now. And obviously this is, you know, the show has been around a long time now. But when you go back and you look at the state of our industry, how have you seen better things play a role in the kinds of roles that are being written specifically for women these days? Well, that would make me happy to think that it had anything to do with that. For me, I say that it was exactly the right time to do the show. Like I had this window and if I had tried to do it a year before or a year later, it never would have gotten done. And the fact that it took off in our world, in our small space that we occupy. Exactly. You know, and then just all of this is happening. And I remember there used to be this frenzy for me just as an actor And I never like imagined that I could be anything but just a gun for hire, that there was this frenzy of you have to hide your age and you you get age shamed and you get looks shamed and all of that stuff. And that was so a huge part of the industry up until, I guess, five, four or five years ago. I feel like there's been a significant change. And if the world of this show has made room for that, that makes me crazy happy. When I was pitching the show and first selling the show, I thought nobody's going to even want to see this. Nobody's going to want to see me in a show as the lead. I'm going to get replaced by Amanda Peet. I know it. (laughs) Like day one pilot you know what, great idea, but can we just do a little switcheroo, <laughs> like modular? So I think it's it's incredible. And you see all these great actors and all this great stuff for women. Look at Jeannie Berlin. She's in Hunters and Succession, you know? And it's so exciting because you see her and you're like, she's as sexy as, and exciting as a 20-year-old girl to me, you know? And there is no you know, kind of that person doesn't fit there. Everybody's like a beautiful unicorn right now. I feel like that's the thing. Like we can all be exactly who we are. Yeah. And then and your show to me helped prove to some of these networks that may have been risk adverse in doing a show that it's it's a one hander. It's a female led one hander. Yeah. With no male lead, which is not something we would have seen to, to your point five years ago. So, yeah. So credit to you. Thank you. Well, how has 
FX been with that element of it, the no male lead, no consistent romantic lead? Has anyone at any point ever said to you, hey, wouldn't it be good if there was a season long love story arc? Or Never, something? not one time. And this also, I will say, I don't believe that any other network or service or platform or whatever the fuck everything is called now, <laughs> phone, car, chair. Quibi, whatever Quibi is. Yes, that only FX, for some reason, they just poured their support into me and never mandated anything, ever. You know, I had this conversation with John Langraff after he bought the pilot and we made the pilot and he said, okay, this is your dime. Tell me how you see the show unfolding. And, you know, we were on the phone for an hour. I said, I want to elevate the mundane. I've never seen somebody like me. I have not related to anybody like me in TV. Um, I want to tell this story. My friends and I could all go in and rob a bank and they wouldn't even fucking blink. They would be like, nobody sees us, you know. And so that's just been incredible. And to be able to keep telling these stories and having their trust that's the only way this show could have been anything of any quality is there being hands off. But the notes, I take the notes and I'm like always like, okay, whatever. Okay, what are your notes? Like, you know, and it's always good. It always helps me decide whether to, you know, that my choices, like I really kind of dig my feet in and say, oh, actually, I'm not going to take that note. Oh, that other note is interesting. It always makes the show better. So I just love FX. What are things obviously. that you've dug your feet in on over the years? You know, they would give me a note saying, we don't want to end on him in the scene. We want to end with Sam. We feel empathy for Sam. We don't, And I'm like, well, I want to go inside this person's head. And so... They've always let me kind of keep air in my show, which every year uh, is harder and harder to do because when I started the show, people weren't binging the way they are now. And everything is built for that kind of consumption. And because of the fact that I've been able to maintain the integrity of those moments, I believe that's what sticks with you. And I'm trying to make something that people will say, oh, I want to watch that episode of Better Things. And they they have it as opposed to like a disposable fare <laughs> that you don't remember what you're watching. While we're on the notes process, there is an episode in this season. I think you've referred to it as the cunt and penis episode. And I don't know if we're going to be yes. able to use that language on the show. But here we go. Let's do it. Parental, war Parental warning. Parental yeah. warning. Don't listen to this podcast with your children or at least for the next five minutes. There you go. <laughs> so there is an, an episode, episode four this season, where you use the word cunt, what, more than a dozen 16. times? 16? 16 okay, times. I thought it was 17, but... I will trust your account. What <laughs> I've been told. I didn't do the counting. <laughs> it's, it's 14 in the initial rush, and then there are a few times that it's tossed around in the aftermath as oh well. God. So, <laughs> But talk a little bit about, A, what you hope to accomplish with that scene and the use of that word so repeatedly on a show that is on a basic cable network mm -hmm. and what the FX notes were <laughs> and what, if anything, you heard back from standards and practices. Okay, so... And obviously you are at, at 10 p.m. where the rules are a little bit less yes, constrictive. Hopefully. <laughs> um, you know, this scene to me is so many levels that 
you've got a mother. This is the most like forbidden word to call a woman. And so basically it's like a breaking point and her daughter's being so rude and such a little bitch to her that she just looks at her and she calls her a cunt. She says, you cunt. And her daughter's shocked. So there's just these levels. It's just matter-of-factly, this mother's telling her daughter what she is, and her daughter then hits her back, and then the mother hits her back. And it to me, it's hilarious because when the mother says to the daughter, every time she says, you're a cunt, Max, and the daughter says, no, mom, you're a cunt. And that's hilarious to me that she's saying mom and she's saying Max. And they just keep going back and forth. And then at the end, it gets diffused because they realize how ridiculous it is. I mean, it plays so perfectly where there's so much anger. And like, I remember, you know, moments like that, you know, as, as a teenager with my mom. Mm-hmm. And we certainly never used that language because no. we're, you know, I never even heard of that. We're passive aggressive, hold in your feelings, yes. and, you know, type family. But then it evolves into something great where at the end of the scene, everything's fine. There's an apology yeah. and then it becomes And it Sam becomes, is Sam is crying. She's so filled with rage and and sadness that it's come to this and then it goes from one end of the spectrum to the exactly. other. Exactly. They're laughing and to me it's incredibly important to be able to it's not about being hurtful, but to be able to say things to your close ones, your relatives, your friends, to be able to just say something out loud and that it's not the end of the world, that you can repair from it and you see the whole spectrum, then the embrace, it's huge on so many levels to me. I I get so excited about it because they were at a breaking point, you know what I mean? And you always need to go back to a non-reactive place when you're in a home with all these personalities. So what was the network note? How did they respond? How did Stan? Well, this is usually the note when it comes to something like that. Tonnage, tonnage. That's the word that they use. They're like, okay, well, we feel like the tonnage. And I had this great talk with Jonathan Frank at FX. And he said, listen, I'm very proud to (laughs) tell you that I'm the person who brought the C word to this network, I think it was in Damages or something like that. I'm sorry, we need to fact check, whatever. But I mean, FX has historically pushed the boundary when it comes to, to language. And so Jonathan had said he, he was going to go to bat to standards and practices. And, and I just said, listen, this is not gratuitous. This is why this is so important. And even more so, it's a mother and a daughter, and they're saying it to each other. So... Then at TCA's, Jonathan Frank came up to me and said, oh, we're cleared. I just wanted you to know. And I was like, oh, good. Thank God. At TCA's, you you were confident that it was going to be, but you it hadn't actually happened. So yes. it, well, I love that scene because it's a compliment to the scene from last season with Duke in the parking lot and swearing there. Yeah. And I'm curious if there are different rules when it's an underage kid swearing up a storm versus when it's an adult young person swearing up a storm or if FX is just like, whatever. You know go. what? They were They were pretty open <laughs> to Duke doing that. She was really, like, enjoying that. She was pretty excited about it. And, yeah, there were no rules with with that stuff either. And 
that whole thing, it was so shocking hearing that come out of that baby's mouth. And then Frankie, the one that everybody says is so hard and <laughs> edgy and spiky, she's just like saying, mommy's little princess and whatever. And she couldn't come up with all that stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it all depends on context. Yeah. And I mean, to get this kind of content through, especially at a time when this network is, is now owned by Disney, to me, <laughs> makes it even that much more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was one of the things when we found out that the, the merger was happening. They said, status quo, you just keep making what you're making. And so this, I think, proves that. <laughs> I wonder if there is a Disney cunt barrier of some sort that you have just broken. There must be some <laughs> cunt bar. I think, you just did, I, I think you just raised it. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things I like so much about the show is how loose and unstructured and no rulesy it feels. And I'm curious when you're in the pre-production process, how structured and how many rules you have to have to make it seem that loose down the road. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's a really good question. I just feel like for me, my rule is pay attention when I'm making it because there can be so much noise that comes at me when I'm shaping the season and then particularly when I'm on set. So there's like a, a thing that I, I'm now trained. If there's more than two kids in a scene, I have to be careful that it doesn't become a Nickelodeon show. I'm like, you know, because if you have two kids and then you have grownups, they're loving the kid actors and, and then the kids will do something. And I'm like, okay, this is better things. Let's go to the world that we're in. I always need to take a minute, walk away, make sure that the show maintains that feeling of being no boundaries because you know, in the life of a family and in, in the life of Sam Fox and in my life, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, so I always want to instill that into the show. You think you're fine. You have your footing. And then it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, all these. And then you're like, oh, just please. One boring day. One boring. <laughs> you just described being a journalist in peak TV era. There so, you yeah. go. <laughs> Well, okay, so what does a Nickelodeon show look like and how has the process been for you of learning to recognize what the Nickelodeon version of the show is versus the FX version of the show? Great question. Well, you know, I could give you an example. So the one where Duke and Frankie have the fight in the parking lot at go-karting. So Duke says, Mom, can I have some more quarters? And I'm like, I just gave you money. And she's like, no, Pepper and I want to whatever. So I give her some quarters and, and I have her walk down all the arcade machines towards where Pepper is at the pool table. And so this is the actors. This is Emma and Olivia who play Duke and Pepper and they're geniuses, both of them. So I have Olivia hand the quarters to Emma and Emma smiles and they just run off. And I go over and I go, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, Emma, lay on the pool table and roll the pool ball a, 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 up and down the table. And Duke, you come over, show her the quarters. You kind of release them, you know, in a stream on the table. And Emma, you don't give a shit. 
you guys are just in your world. So that's the difference, like the way you change it, because you want them to do it the way they would do it first, which is happy kids. And I'm like, no, better things, kids. (laughs) You know, we talk, obviously, you have a crew filming you today as we record this because everyone continues to ask you how you balance it all, which, you know, yes, this is 2020. Women can do more than one thing at a time. But I'm wondering in the larger sense, what have you learned through this process of doing everything yourself about yourself? Like whether it is specific to directing or running the show or in a writer's room or as an actress, what have been your big takeaways so far from this whole thing? I feel like it's shocking that I was limiting myself so much, you know, and I look back at all of the time that I waited like for pilot season as an actor and just like, oh, maybe, uh, I don't know, if I'm going to get that Jake and the Fat Man episode or something. <laughs> don't care if I'm dating myself. <laughs> Old is in. <laughs> Old is sexy, baby. I mean, you just also described the most in-demand role this pilot season, and it's, for lack of a better phrasing, it is women of a certain age. That's one of the things that we keep hearing. Oh, I thought you were going to say that they were rebooting Jake, Jake and the, and the Fat, Fat Man. Man. <laughs> I mean, not yet that I know of. Why not? Well, at some point, I mean, everything's getting rebooted. But like, yes, but you know, and as you're doing all these other things, is there something about the process that that you have discovered that you enjoy more? Well, the thing that I have now that I really never had is confidence, and it's the one thing. It's my one of my first ads, Maria Mantia. She told me in season one. She said, your being able to make decisions is keeping this show going. And it makes everybody operate at just a higher level. When you are sure and you can make decisions and you feel confident in your choices, then everything changes. I mean, that's one thing. The other thing is I would say to everybody don't just think you can do one thing. It's not the way anymore. It's not the way of the world. I mean, if you have a trade and you're a blacksmith, I mean, that's incredible because those are becoming less and less because practical life things people are losing. And I feel like we need to do that now. I really would encourage anybody who's young and starting to do everything you possibly can. You know, I always had a very intense work ethic. My brother and I, we got it from our parents. My mother always had at least three jobs. Her mother always had three jobs. You know, while my dad was writing and trying to make a living and he wasn't supporting us financially. So that's something that I look back at my life and I was always writing. I was always um, making movies, writing songs, writing poems, doing the documentaries, all of that. But I never put it all together. Oh, I could do all of this here in this universe. Well, is the the Jessica Barden character this season, who I guess is Jessica Barden. Yes. uh, But is is she sort of the version of you at 30 if someone had told you, you could do all of these things? I wish that had happened to me. You know, that's my wish. I don't wish for anything that, you know what I mean, that I don't have. But at that age, that would have been incredible. Somebody saw me and that they they said, hey, 
you're hilarious. And then there's this kind of theme this season where people say, you're going to be in town. You're going to be in town. And it's always bullshit because, you know, in, in our business, there's a lot of people who do that. They never cast you. You're going to be around? You're going to be in town? Yeah, I'm going to be in town. And you get so excited and nothing ever happens. So she's the one you'll see later who comes through for her. And the fact that this young woman is seeing Sam for who she is, that's really exciting to me. Now, at Press Tour, I loved your nerdy enthusiasm about getting to use a split diopter this season. Oh, yeah. I'm curious, have you always had that sort of geeky technical aspect to you, or is this bringing that out and creating it anew? Well, I just, I love finding out about the equipment, you know, and I always look at my camera department, I'm like, what is that? What lens is that? They're like, it's a 70, you love it. (laughs) They remember the things that I love. And I've been obsessed with split diopters forever, but... Every single season, I'm like, can we use a split diopter on this? You have to tell us three days in advance. (laughs) So this year, I said to Paul Kessner, my DP, can we please get a split diopter in the camera package? (laughs) And I was able to use it, I think, three times. We used it twice in the episode, was it three? The one where Max and I go to the nail salon. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Definitely in the first four. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's next in your tool bag that you want to get to use now that you got to use the split diopter two or three times? I just want to keep an Oculus on my camera package. I want to keep a drone. I mean, my uh, my drone shots, oh my God, I love them so much. <laughs> but there's so much that I don't know. But the little things, you know, I've had the Patriot car and I've had the Technocrane and all of that. So I'm aware of the equipment and the the prime lenses and all of that. At the end of the day, my abilities lie within what's in the frame and working with the actors. Given your interest in, in behind the camera and then obviously all of the technical facets that come with it, what doors does that open? Like what's next, basically? Obviously running this show and doing everything that you do with it is a, a massive full-time job. It's like three different or four different jobs all in one. But beyond the show, what's what's next for you? Like, are you going to direct another episode of a different show? What's your next goal? Yeah, I mean, I would love to do that. I have three shows in development with FX right now. And I'm also making my childhood friend's memoir into a movie. So those are the things that are happening for me right now. And I'm still doing my voiceover stuff. I'm doing one after I get out of this studio. So, I mean... My rule for myself is I don't take on more than I can handle. And I learned that when my kids were really little and I was a single mom. And I was like, I have to pace myself. But now I'm excited to do these other projects. And, you know, I'm excited to to do bigger things, theater and movies and stuff like that. Well, going back to sort of the other options, has anyone reached out to you to to direct another episode of a different TV show? Have you had those offers? And and is that something that has no allure to you because you love basically the ability to control every facet as you can on this show? Well, I am getting opportunities that are incredible to me, but I just did This Is Us. And so it was funny going in there 
you know, as an actor, the guest star on the set, and I had to, you know, stay in my lane. Same thing when I did Bumblebee. I went to do Bumblebee, <laughs> and I was like, um, oh, and I'm biting my tongue the whole time <laughs> because, you know, that's not my place. So I think that it's a great next step for me to be able to go and run a set on a different show. I would love to do that because I didn't think I was terrified to go do This Is Us. And I know Sterling and I knew it, I felt so loved and appreciated for what I brought over there just as an actor. So, yeah, that would be really cool. Is it almost vacation-y to get to go and wear only one hat on someone else's set? No, and... it's no, it's way worse. Oh, why? Oh, it's so <laughs> it's so much harder because I'm just sitting there going, "Wait, um you guys are like I got to work at 6:30 in the morning and it was just a, you know, a two-hander with me and Sterling and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to be out of here by like 10:45." We were there the entire day and I was like, "You guys are allowed to spend this much time. And it was directed by a woman. She was fantastic. Her name is Roxanne. I'm sorry, I don't remember her last name. And there was so much time and respect paid to the work that my mind was blown. So again, everything is a learning moment. I don't know nearly anything. And it was fascinating to me because I shoot one episode of Better Things in four days. Wow. Most shows are like eight, at least the hour long dramas are like eight days minimum. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. I know like Kevin Pollack tells me that Mrs. Maisel is like 19 days. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> Jesus. So it was it was great for me. It was very head cracking to see that kind of respect. Paid. Do you get extra time when you do an episode like the New Orleans episode where you get to go and just party around the Big Easy? Or no, that was just four days also? Yeah, it was. And what we did was we shot the interiors here in Los Angeles. And uh, that was the trade-off. Meanwhile, it was December 19th in New Orleans. It was the coldest winter they've ever had. You could see our face. We're freezing. We're we're hiding all the Christmas decorations. You know, so it was like a trade because it's supposed to be summer. But it turned out amazing. I love that episode. So Obviously, Better Things is where the priority is. But in this peak TV era, no one really understands how people are viewing shows or what the performance really is, especially now that you have your episodes available on Hulu the very next day. Yeah. Do you have a long-term plan for how much longer this goes? I mean, I hope it goes on as long as you want it to. But what has the network communicated to you and, and how do you approach each season without the clarity of knowing if that, that may be it? What I do is I create the season as if it's going to be the last you know, I don't want to have a janky ending. I want the last ones to have something of a flourish, you know. And so they've been extremely positive. And for me, it's just a matter of how quickly would I want to get on that hamster wheel. But, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of breaking stories, this was your second season working with a writer's room. I'm curious as to how comfortable you now feel with that part of the process and, and with the writers you got to work with this season. You know, I adore it. It's everything that Phil Rosenthal said it was going to be. And I kind of look around at other people and showrunners and I say, how many writers do you have in your room? Oh, we've got nine. I want more. <laughs> you know, I'm super involved and invested in 
all the writing of every episode. Would it be nice if I could kind of pull back a little bit? Maybe, but I don't know. I Could you at this point, do you think? Constitutionally, as you know, in terms of your own psyche, could you pull back? You know, it depends. I've got a couple of writers who really know. They know Sam. They know the world of this show. And I really trust them. So it's been an incredible experience. I've got to say, I love working with the writers and I love everything that they've contributed. Well, we always like to end these interviews with the same question in this crazy landscape where there's 530 shows just on the scripted side alone, another 2,000 unscripted. What are you watching and enjoying? Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I totally watched Succession. I loved it so much, so much that, you know, I mean, right now everybody wants to have coffee with me or meet me or pick my brain, whatever. So I actually said yes to Kieran Culkin because he wanted to meet with me. And I was like, I'm only here because you're Roman. (laughs) Tell me everything. Yeah, exactly. And he's hilarious. I'm like, a lot of you got into that character, right? And he said, (laughs) oh, oh, yeah. I'm like, I think so. I adored that. I couldn't. That show freaks me out. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's terrific, yeah. Um, And now I'm watching Hunters, which I can't believe. And it's super uncomfortable. And it's almost like. You remember the show Scorpion? Uh-huh. <laughs> but with Nazis and blood and <laughs> vaginas. <laughs> Wait, am I kind of right? It's like Scorpion, only with Nazis instead of math. Yes. <laughs> no, but the math is there because he's doing all the... Ma- What's his name? The the lead boy? Logan Lerman. Who yeah, is so, so good. good. Oh, my God. But he's doing the code stuff. So I'm like, oh, this is totally Scorpion. <laughs> Wait, I'm right. I think I'm right. I like. I want to watch that crossover. <laughs> Anything else you want to single out while we got you? Um, what am I excited? I'm excited to see Twenties, Lena Waithe's new show, BET. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one, and uh, that's it. I really, I, I mean, for me, my comfort food is just watching old movies. Uh, you know, I just eat them up. So, well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Pamela. Thank you guys so much. That was really, really great. Awesome. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Launching this week are Westworld Season 3 and David Simon's The Plot Against America, both on HBO. Hulu's Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington limited series Little Fires Everywhere. IFC's great baseball comedy, Brockmire, as well as the second season of Showtime's Wall Street comedy, Black Monday. Dan, what's worth watching? You don't know that IFC's great baseball comedy, Brockmire, is great because you won't watch it, darn it. It's not that I won't. It's just that I haven't had time. And I know it's great because you say it's great. It is true. I do keep insisting on it. But since baseball is being delayed by the coronavirus, surely this is the perfect opportunity for you to catch up on three seasons of Brock Meyer that are currently on Hulu, and you could probably catch up in time for the fourth and final season premiere, uh, which is next week on the 18th. I've seen only a few of the episodes so far. Probably that's a lot of what I'm watching this weekend, which is a thing to look forward to because Brock Meyer is absolutely hilarious, and it really and truly is probably the TV comedy that makes me laugh the most at this point. There are probably comedies that I like more but in terms of just sheer snort laughing, Brockmire is really tough to beat. The fourth season is wildly 
out there. The premise of the show, for people who don't know, is that Hank Azaria plays a very, very uncouth baseball announcer. And the fourth season jumps into the future, uh, 10 years and then even further into the future, in a circumstance or situation in which Brockmeyer somehow becomes the commissioner of baseball, a dying sport, and attempts to revitalize the game. It is truly hilarious. And more than just being hilarious, it is an amazingly resilient premise for what started out as a funnier die sketch character. It is remarkable the way that they have extended that character and his world and just so admirable. It is such a great show and such a great performance by Hank Azaria. It is borderline disgraceful that the show is probably going to end without him ever having gotten an Emmy nomination for that role. Such a great performance. That is definitely a great thing you can watch uh, this week. We just had our conversation with the tremendous Josh Wiggler, who will be doing fantastic coverage of Westworld through the season. And um, you'll be a regular guest, a semi-regular guest on series regular Occasional. Too. Occasional guest. And the reason why I'm only going to be an occasional guest is, and I don't need to be frank about this because my review is up on Hollywood Reporter and I've never been particularly shy about saying this. Westworld is a show that really and truly leaves me cold. It is a show that to me is not as profound as it thinks it is and is not as smart as it thinks it is when it unveils endless scenes of whispered monologuing about self-determinism and last season data mining. And it is just a show that is really, really over-invested in its own self-worth when it really could stand to be significantly more fun and more light on its feet. The new season reboots things slightly and probably does benefit from that. I would say that, you know, Aaron Paul makes things better. So having Aaron Paul in the cast is a good thing. They're showing some of the outside world on the show. That's a good thing. I think that the things that the show does well it does tremendously well. I think that Evan Rachel Wood is wonderful, and I think she's better than ever in these early episodes. I think that uh, Tandy Newton is terrific, and she's very good in these early episodes. I think they are finally getting some value out of Tessa Thompson, who for the first two seasons has been pretty much wasted. Like they cast her, they got lucky, and she was right on the verge of movie stardom, and then they couldn't figure out a way to use her, or alternatively, she was busy. I would guess probably much more probably the latter. latter yeah. And they're using her a fair amount more this season, and I think it's to her and the show's benefit. It's just the show gets bogged down in its own mythology to such a distracting degree, and and I just don't care all that much, but it is a show with a half dozen great performances, and it is beautifully produced consistently. The The special effects are always great. It's really handsome, even if sometimes it's basically a perfume or a car commercial masquerading as a TV show. Uh, so that is Westworld. Yeah. My, my challenge with Westworld is it was kind of like the final season of Lost, um, where <laughs> I, I know what I'm watching and, and it's interesting and I'm, and I'm plugged into it and I'm paying close attention to everything, but I still have to go online afterwards to read about and, and fully understand what I just watched. And I don't want to put in that work when I'm watching a show. Not, not right now. Right now I want to watch Brockmire. So. Well, and so if what you're looking for, and you really should watch Brockmire, have I mentioned that? Yeah, you might uh, have. 
<laughs> if what you're looking for is escapist TV, you're definitely not going to watch the uh, next show that I'm going to mention, which is David Simon's uh, Plot Against America, which premieres on March 16th. It is based on the novel by Philip Roth, uh, created by David Simon and regular collaborator Ed Burns, it should be noted. Uh, and it is an alt history like the book about a world in which in 1940, Charles Lindbergh ran for president under an isolationist America first platform, was elected president despite his total lack of qualifications and steered the country into a wave of horrible anti-Semitism while also avoiding World War II and coddling Hitler. So it is about as close to the bone in terms of understanding where the contemporary resonances just might potentially be, as you could imagine. And it's basically plays entirely differently than if you happen to read Philip Roth's novel when it came out in 2004. Uh, it is expertly unpleasant would be how I would describe it. It is wonderfully produced with all of its period touches. Uh, the cast is is great. Winona Ryder is, is fine, perhaps a little big. John Turturro, a little big. But Zoe Kazan and Morgan Spector are, are tremendous. A bunch of good young actors. Uh, Anthony Boyle, who some theatergoers will know from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. He was nominated for a Tony. He is really probably the breakout here as part of a family that is dealing with, with this upside-down world. And so on one hand... There is no question that people who watch The Plot Against America will be able to relate it to their everyday lives. But it is also a show that makes you feel increasingly tense, worried and anxious as it goes along. And that is completely and totally its intention. It wants to do those things. But maybe this is not exactly the perfect time for people to be eagerly seeking out things that make them feel miserable. But you know what your needs are better than I do. It's very good. So that's probably the bottom line on that one. It's really good TV. It just might make you feel a little sick to your stomach. And then finally, the last of the things to, to mention that's coming up, and we will have a great interview next week with Liz Tigelar, the showrunner of Little Fires Everywhere, is Little Fires Everywhere, which is Hulu's Big limited series. Uh, Liz Tiglar insists that it actually is a limited series. But as we may have mentioned on this podcast, say, you know, 10 minutes ago, nothing's actually limited. Nothing's actually limited. Uh, it, is, it is a show with some very, very solid performances and some interesting things on its mind and some interesting changes from the book. Uh, to me, it feels a lot like an Ohio set version of Big Little Lies. And I'm kind of feeling as if... A lot of the Big Little Lies people are, for whatever reason, being stuck into doing variations on that. And I don't know how much of that I necessarily need. But it's it's good to see Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington giving themselves this vehicle to be front and center and to strut their star power. Uh, so it's it's worth checking out. I, I don't know that it works entirely for me, but it's it's interesting. And our interview next week is a fantastic interview. So definitely worth checking that out. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll hopefully be back next week, right, Dan? Yeah, I think 
we're going to work from home and then come in and record the podcast. And hopefully there'll be news to talk about. <sighs> we will see how it goes. Uh, until then, wash your hands and treat yourself like you would want the person sitting next to you on an airplane to be treating themselves. But getting back to my normal spiel, if you like us, subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. We appreciate it if you give us a rating, if you like us. If you really like us, we really appreciate it if you write little uh, reviews, commentary, whatever. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to see people, and the coronavirus cannot be transmitted on Twitter. So if you have questions, comments, and concerns, say hi to us there. But if you have questions, like mailbag questions, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>